The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Amen. His name is Jesus, and uh, we are grateful to be here together. It's a joy to be gathered uh, together to worship our Lord, and it's a joy to be gathered on a day when we're reminded of the gift of Jesus, of the gift of the incarnation, and all that that means. And uh, in a word, it's a, uh, it's a joy. <laughs> it is absolute joy uh, to think about and to celebrate uh, Jesus Christ. And uh, that word joy, it's a, it's a welcomed word because we live in a world uh, that's known for so much pain, so much sorrow, so much misery in this life. Last week, we uh, referenced a, a hymn, a Christmas uh, carol, A Joy to the World by Isaac Watts. And one of the lines of that song says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. This is the one that we're celebrating, the, the one who's come to bring joy to the world. And the birth of Jesus Christ does indeed mean joy to the world. And surprisingly, we find an anticipation of that joy all the way back in the very first book of the Bible, in the book of, of Genesis. And, and maybe this will uh, wet, wet your appetite for our, our journey through Scripture our Sunday school class in about two weeks that we'll be having that class. All 66 books of the Bible from cover to cover uh, we'll be covering in that class. And all 66 books of the Bible anticipate Jesus Christ. We, we find Jesus weaved in and through the entire biblical record. In John chapter 5 and verse 39, Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. The Old Testament scriptures are a testimony to Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 27, Jesus spoke to his disciples and beginning with Moses and with all of the prophets, and Moses being written by Moses writing the book of Genesis, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus was able to take the scriptures and point to himself in all of the scriptures because the scriptures anticipated Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, his glorious resurrection are all spoken of in advance so that when he came, that we would be able to recognize him. And one of these early sections of scripture in Genesis chapter 3 is where we find, again, Jesus anticipated. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 in particular, it's been called the, the proto-evangelium, or evangelium, it's a, from a, a Latin word, proto, meaning first, initial, original, and evangelium, a, a Latin word for good news or for the gospel. We hear, hear the, the word evangel in there, evangelize, evangelism, uh, we get from that, that word. It's the first proclamation of the gospel in the scriptures. And in this first proclamation of the gospel, there would be the promise that Adam and Eve would have clung to. It was the same promise that all of their descendants would have clung to, that they would have had to believe in order to have a right relationship with God. And we'll examine this idea more as we work through the text, but salvation, listen to this, salvation has always been by grace, through faith, and because of Christ. It's always been that way. It's always been by grace, through faith, and because of Jesus Christ. And the gospel, even in seed form, and that's what we find in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, that the gospel, even in seed form, was mighty to save, that they were saved by believing in the promise that God gave to them. And just to introduce ourselves to the context here, let's take a look at Genesis chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 15. Genesis chapter 2, and I'll read verses 15 down to 17 for you. Starting at verse 15. It says, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. 
Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and uh, Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for this anticipation of Jesus Christ, Lord, even from the very first book of the Bible. And uh, Father, we are grateful that Jesus Christ has come. And Father, even today, we, we still anticipate Jesus Christ because the same one who's come is coming again. So Father, I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy, with this eager anticipation as we long for our Savior. And uh, Father, we look forward to the, to the return of, of Christ even so quickly. Come, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. The first two chapters of the book of Genesis describe the abundant provision given to Adam and Eve. Adam was placed in a paradise by God, and, and what else did Adam need? He had a home, the Garden of Eden, Eden, where there was every tree that was pleasing to the sight and good for food. He even had its own irrigation system in the Garden of Eden. In verse 10, it says, a, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. He had an occupation to cultivate and to, to keep the garden. He was given dominion over the fish, the birds, the cattle, the creeping things. He had a companion that was made just for him, specifically designed for Adam. And more than that, he had fellowship with his creator. Adam experienced all the joys and blessings of his creator as long as he lived in obedience to his law. And there was only one law. <laughs> There's only one law that was given to him. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. That's it. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Why? Why would you turn against all of the blessings, the joy of God? And here you have this one restriction. Only one tree. And why did God include this restriction? Because it was good for Adam to have a restriction. God, after he finished his work of creation, Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very what? It was very good. It was good for this tree to be in the middle of the garden. It was good for Adam to have a restriction. In another context, the Apostle Paul says, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. It was good for Adam to have this law. It was good for him to have a command. It was a reminder that God had authority over his life. That tree was a reminder that, that I'm the one who's in charge here, Adam. It gave mankind the opportunity to practice uh, moral restraint, which is a good thing. And on the positive side, it gave Adam and Eve the opportunity to demonstrate their love and their loyalty to their creator. This tree was a good thing. And by itself, the tree was not a temptation. You know, sometimes people look at the tree as if the tree itself was the temptation. And as if God was somehow responsible for this temptation. But as we know, God is never responsible for temptation, right? James chapter 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God planted the tree. He clearly told Adam, do not eat from it. That's not a temptation, but that is a test. God did test Adam. And it would be something completely different if God created the tree and then told him not to eat, but then said, but take a look at the fruit and how good it looks. I mean, that's, that's enticing him towards evil. God never entices us towards evil. The tree itself was good. Nothing inherently wrong with the tree. But there was a being who took what was good and sought to corrupt it. And we're introduced to him in chapter 3. And this is where we have the temptation. Verses 1 to 6 speak about the temptation. Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now, the Hebrew word here for crafty is not inherently an evil word either. Uh, the word for crafty is used several times in the Proverbs uh, to speak about prudence, wisdom. Proverbs 13, 16 says, every prudent man acts with knowledge. Proverbs 14 and verse 8 says, the wisdom of the sensible is to understand his way. It's, it's a word for wisdom, prudence. And I find it fascinating that when Jesus wants to give his disciples an illustration of what wisdom looks like, he tells his disciples to be wise or as shrewd as serpents. There's nothing wrong with the way that God made the serpent. The serpent was a part of God's good creation, just like every other beast of the field was a part of God's good creation, which lets us know that when this serpent starts to talk and he's enticing Eve towards the sin, this serpent was being corrupted, was being used against what he was designed to do. 
that there was something from outside the garden that was not good that came into the garden because everything that was in the garden was good. So something from outside the garden came into the garden that was bad. Let's us know that somebody else was using this serpent's voice. The scripture is clear who was using this serpent's voice. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9 describes Satan as the great dragon who was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. We, we know who this serpent is. John chapter 8 and verse 44, Jesus lets us know where lies originate. Where do all lies come from? John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He is a liar and the father of lies. That's where deception comes from. This was Satan using this snake, this serpent, just like the demons who entered into a herd of swine in Matthew chapter 8. Satan was able to enter into the snake and use him for his own twisted purposes. And he chose to use the most crafty, the most prudent, the most wise of all the beasts that God had made? And how did this serpent look before, how did he look before he was cursed? We don't know. How did this serpent talk and form words? We don't know. We do know that he was transformed after the fall, so that, that somehow his, apparently his anatomy was even changed, had a different anatomy from before the fall and after the fall. And why didn't Eve consider it strange that a, a snake is talking? We don't know. <laughs> but all of this creation is new to her. And this is all of part of the deception. You know, maybe she's, she's wondering, you know, hey, I didn't even know that snakes could talk. Why didn't God tell me about this? And we can find in this origin of all temptations as this, the serpent comes to Eve, the same schemes that the enemy uses towards us today. Take a look again at chapter 3. It says, and he said to the woman, indeed has God said? Has God really said that? The 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11 says that no advantage should be taken of us by Satan because we are not ignorant of his schemes. We know how Satan works. It's predictable. He uses the same tricks from the very beginning. How does Satan bring us temptation? Number one, he questions God's goodness. He questions God's goodness. Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? He doesn't point her to the vast goodness of God and the abundance that God has provided for her. Rather, he points to the restriction. Can't, can't you eat from anything around here? Is, is there any, any restrictions that you have? Is there a tree that you might not be able to eat from? Satan does the same thing to us today. He highlights our restrictions, our limitations. The places that God places on us. So how, how do we battle that? We remind ourselves about the goodness of God. Psalm 102, uh, 103 verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Don't forget the goodness of God. And the answer that Eve gave demonstrated that the, the seed of doubt had already started to take root in her heart. Because look at her answer. Because she makes God seem less generous than he really was. He said, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree? Can't you eat from any tree? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we, we may eat. But that's not exactly what God said. In chapter 2 and verse 16, God says, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. That's how God stated it. From any tree freely, except this one. But now she says, well... Well, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. It's not any tree we may freely eat. She doesn't look at the goodness of God. She starts to think about the restrictions that God has placed on her. God seems less generous than he was. God also seems more demanding and restrictive than he was. Look at verse 3. It says, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And that's also not exactly what God said. God simply said, you shall not eat from it. But now God seems like he's even more demanding. You know, he's even told us we can't touch it. You know, you can't touch this. How are they supposed to, to keep and cultivate something? Think about it. That's what Adam and Eve were, were given the responsibility to do, to keep and cultivate the garden. How are they to keep and cultivate something that they can't touch? 
Obviously, they're able to touch it. I mean, they could have done anything with this. You know, hang a hammock from it, make a toothpick out of it. I mean, I don't care. I'm just saying don't eat from it. But now all of a sudden, God seems more restrictive. He says we can't even touch it. Then Satan goes from questioning God's goodness to an outright accusation. He accuses God of lying, blatantly contradicts God. Look at verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Outright contradiction. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here is where the battle has always been, hasn't it? It's a battle for the truth. Who is to be believed? Who is to be trusted? And when you start to doubt in the one offensive weapon that God has given you, his word, we've already lost. Once we let go of the word of God, we've already lost. Satan will try to convince you that the one offensive weapon that you have, the sword of the spirit, uh, is really not good. God is just really holding back from you your true joy and satisfaction. And isn't that the temptation from the world? You know, why would you let that old book hold you back from the best that life has to offer? And if you do hold on to that book, I mean, maybe there's a, another way to interpret those clear statements of Scripture. I mean, it doesn't really mean what it says it means. And then the world seeks to, to judge God. Independent of any objective standard, the world seeks to judge God. As if we can determine what's right and wrong for ourselves, what's good and evil for ourselves. The world wants to portray God as the wicked one. Everything is backwards. The God of the Bible is actually seen as the, uh, the enemy Christians are considered the ones who are evil. I mean, that's the world that we live in today. The Christians are the evil ones. Paul asked uh, this question in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 16. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? <laughs> now, now I'm your enemy because I'm, I'm telling you what's right? But that's the world we live in. We're the enemies because we're the people of the truth. So now we're the enemies. 1 John 3, 7 8 says the one who practices righteousness is, is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. But now that's hate speech. That's hate speech. God says that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Oh, hate. That's hateful. Hate speech. You're so restrictive. You know, we've moved beyond that. We'll decide for ourselves what's good. We'll decide for ourselves what's right. We'll come up with our own definitions, create our own morality. And why should God be the only one that's able to determine what's right and wrong? And that's essentially what Eve is doing. She's seeking to gain some kind of independence from God. She'll evaluate these things for herself. She doesn't need God to tell her. I'll, I'll decide whether or not the tree is good enough to eat. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And it's been pointed out here that the descent into sin is the same route that we all take. All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, 1 John 2.16, is not from the Father, but it's of the world. And this is the same descent that Eve went down. The lust of the flesh, she saw that the tree was good for food. The lust of the eyes, it was a delight to the eyes. The boastful pride of life, it was desirable to make one wise. Same temptation that Satan took her down is the same one he takes us down. And it's the same one that he fell for in his own heart. Because he looked at God and said, you know what? I think I can be like that. I, I want to be like the most high. I will make myself like the most high. Isaiah 14 and verse 14. The first wicked thought in all of history. And the curtains pulled back. And this is what Satan really desires for himself. Instead of looking at God and seeing God as all that he is, the God of love, goodness, kindness, now God's restrictive. And I should determine for myself whether or not he's worthy of being obeyed. And then we have one of the most momentous decisions in all of human history in just a few simple words. Look at verse 6. It says, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her. And he ate. It's like, like is that it? <laughs> is that it? I mean, what, what happened? And was Adam with her the whole time? What was he thinking? I mean, so little is said about Adam's fall. We hear a lot about Eve. We don't, I mean, Adam, he just, okay, I'll just take it and eat. I mean, what in the world are you thinking? Tragedy. All the corruption that we see in the world today, I mean, that's where it comes from right there. Romans 5, 12. 
just as through one man sin entered into the world. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die. This is where it all started right here. And when God came to the garden, it was Adam that he looked for. Adam, where are you? You're responsible, Adam. Where are you? And it was not Adam who was deceived. It was Eve who was deceived. Adam took it with eyes wide open. He was willing to disobey God for something as small as a piece of fruit. And the question for us is, what are you willing to disobey the Lord for? Something to think about. Even if you gained the whole world, it wouldn't be worth the exchange. That's the temptation. Let's take a look at the tragedy. The tragedy, look at verse 7. Back in uh, Genesis 3, look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. What's the first thing that we find? The first thing that they see is what they didn't see. We don't have clothes. <laughs> Genesis 2.25 says that the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. There's no need to hide from each other because there's nothing to be ashamed about. No judgment of one another. There's no intended harm for one another. There's no disappointment in one another. I mean, what, what a beautiful picture that is of marriage. But now after the sin... They're hiding from one another. You know, at first, Adam looks at his wife and says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But now he's running from her. Hiding is differing parts from her. And sad illustration of the breakdown in, in marriage. Their clothing wasn't really a well-thought-out plan, just in desperation for something, this loin covering. Same word that's used for a belt or a girdle. They make this kind of girdle belt around their waist, some kind of grass skirt. Fig leaf was the largest of the leaves in Canaan. It was used for shade in Micah chapter 4 and verse 4. And a fig leaf is not suitable covering. Actually, uh, Jennifer and I have been to Israel. We took a picture with a fig leaf. <laughs> it's a ridiculous attempt to cover yourself. But not only was there shame from one another, there's shame before God now. And this has to be one of the most tragic verses in all of Scripture. Look at verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. That, that is just incredibly tragic, isn't it? We know that Adam spent time in the presence of God. In chapter 2, he spends time naming the animals in the presence of God, receiving a wife from the hand of God. No separation between man and God, right? No separation. So what happened? Isaiah 59, 2, But your iniquities have made a separation. Isaiah 59 too. Your sins have hidden his face from you. The, the cool of the day would have been Adam and Eve's favorite time of the day. This is, this is the time when we meet God. The Hebrew article before it indicates it's a, a familiarity. But now it's filled with terror. They're terrified of God. The presence of God in whatever form he manifested himself is now something that they want to hide themselves from. And did you notice, did you notice here, that the loin coverings that they made were not sufficient. They had loins, their loins covered, but they still felt naked. Look at verse 10. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. But, but, but you just made these loin coverings, you're, you're, you're covered. But no, I still feel naked. I'm still looking for some bush to hide behind, some trees to cover me. Because whatever I've done for myself is not enough. I'm still looking to hide myself from God. It was because no covering would have been enough. Martin Luther, uh, he says that even if they uh, made themselves an iron fortress and piled masses of mountains on top of themselves, it still wouldn't be enough to hide them from God. Hebrews 4.13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I'm still naked. And just as a quick point of application, if you're, if you're hiding yourself from God or from others, there's no place of safety apart from coming clean. Proverbs 28, 13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. The only place of safety from God is in God. And God has to draw Adam out. Man doesn't run around the garden saying, God, where are you? God, God, come, come and get me. <laughs> it's God who has to come and say, Adam, where are you? 
The sinner doesn't seek after God. God has to seek after the sinner, which is a a big problem if you're a seeker-sensitive church because you don't have any seekers. Sinners don't seek God. There's four questions that God uses to draw Adam out. Number one, where are you? And it's not like God has trouble finding Adam and Eve. He's not asking for their location. It's not like he's lost them. There's only two people on the earth. God never asks questions because he's trying to learn something. He asks a question because he's trying to teach something. What what is he doing? He's seeking a confession. Adam, Adam, fess up. And instead of Adam admitting the sin that brought about the shame, he just talks about the shame itself. Listen to what he says, verse 10. He said, "I, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Really? Is is that the problem here, Adam? (laughs) Is that what's going on? I, I love what Luther says here again. He says, so thoroughly had sin depraved the man of all discernment and all good sense that he wants to inform God that he's naked. As if God really needs, uh, you know, the information. I was naked. Really? Oh my gosh. Are you serious? It's not the kind of confession that God is looking for. He was attempting to cover his iniquity. That's what was going on. Job 31, 33 says, have I covered my transgressions like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom? Adam's failing to come clean. And that's like so many of us. We, We shift the focus from the real problem onto something that it's not. What Adam said is true as far as it went, but he was afraid that wasn't the center of his problem, right? The center of his problem is that I'm a sinner. That's the center of the problem. And people hide behind all kinds of secondary issues, don't they? You know, I feel so uncomfortable when I'm around you. You know, when you bring that topic up, I just get so stressed out. You know, we used to be able to talk about other things, and now you just want to talk about what I'm doing wrong, and that's so depressing. I don't feel like I have a relationship with you anymore because you keep bringing this up. I feel like you're hounding me. And all of that could be true, but what's the real problem? That's not the real problem. What's the real problem? The problem is the sin. That's the problem. Yeah, you could feel stressed out and whatever else, but, but that's not the problem. <laughs> the problem is the sin. There are times when people feel shame for things that they're not at fault for. Sometimes we can be victims, but we're talking about a sin that you have a part to play in. The way of the transgressor, the Bible says, is hard. Yeah, things can be difficult, but God doesn't allow Adam to slide with the surface answer. So he asks a follow-up question. He said to him, who, who told you that you were naked? God digs deeper in order to get to the root. He reveals that uh, the shame didn't pop up out of thin air. Somebody had to inform you that you were naked. You've been walking around this whole time naked. What's changed? <laughs> Then God asked the direct question, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And he's still here giving Adam the opportunity to come clean. Confession glorifies God. Just, just glorify the Lord. You know, when Achan uh, stole from the possessions at Ai, you know, Joshua says, my son, I implore you, give glory to God. <laughs> just give glory to God. Don't hide it from me. Tell me now what you've done. And there's Adam's moment to give glory to God. And what does he do? He shifts the blame. The man said, verse 12, uh, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. You know, that's right. This, this flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones, she's the problem. She is the problem. She's the reason I was led down this path. I, I went to bed single and I woke up married. I, I had nothing to do with it. I'm a victim of my circumstances. And what kind of pathetic excuse is this? This, this is the kind of excuse that so much secular counseling, psychology, does it shifts the blame to everybody else it's my parents it's my children it's my circumstances it's my environment it's how i grew up i mean everything else is the problem i like what it, uh, one person said you know other people may press your buttons but they're still your buttons <laughs> where are the people who are willing to say that it's me there's a, a song that I, I, I we used to sing growing up it's me it's me it's me oh lord standing in the need of prayer. Not my mother, not my father, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me. I'm not going to pass it on to anybody else. This is me. Where are the people who are willing to say, I'm the problem? I am the problem. Everybody wants to pass the buck. 
And yes, it's true that your circumstances can make it difficult, but I love this statement I heard from Kevin DeYoung. He says, sufferers can also be sinners, and sinners can also be sufferers. Just because you're suffering doesn't mean that you have an excuse now for sin. Well, well, I mean, don't you understand my circumstances? I mean, look at the condition I'm, I'm in. I'm suffering here. That doesn't give you an excuse for sin. Job suffered greatly, right? But did that give him an excuse to curse God and die? No. Yeah, you're suffering, but you don't have an excuse for sin because you suffer. And sinners can also be sufferers. But that doesn't mean that we excuse their sin because they're suffering. We just, oh, I just want to have compassion on you. Look at how much you've gone through. You know, I feel so bad for you. And you just kind of pat them on the back and give them a hug. And let's not talk about that sin anymore because they're suffering. No, you don't, you don't excuse the sin because somebody's a sufferer. Sinners can be sufferers and sufferers can be sinners. And then question four comes up. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Nobody's accepting responsibility here, right? And did you notice how out of order things are? You know, both the man and the woman are given dominion over the earth. That wasn't just a mandate for the man. That's for the man and the woman. To rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, cattle, every creeping thing, including the serpent. He was one of the beasts of the field that mankind had dominion over. But now, instead of taking dominion over the serpent, Eve is listening to the serpent. And now Adam, who's given the first command here, specific instruction from God, who is to to, to love and to lead his wife, now instead of leading her, well, she gave it to me and I ate. You know, everything is out of order. And even Satan in this case, you know, Satan who was created originally as as an angel before God to worship and honor him, but now he's corrupted things. Everything is backwards. Nobody's in order here. And the snake has nobody to blame. (laughs) God doesn't even ask the serpent a question. No need to have a discussion with Satan because there's no hope for redemption, right? And we could work our way through the end of the chapter, but I want you to see the the triumph over the serpent in verses 14 to 15. So we've looked at the temptation. We've looked at the the tragedy. And now we're going to look at the, the triumph. Look at verses 14 and 15. We have the, the triumph. Don't, don't worry, I, I didn't forget that it was Christmas, okay? Look at verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is the triumph. (laughs) The triumph. There's a a triumph in here. And first of all, we have the the triumph over the the physical instrument that Satan used. This serpent is cursed more than all the cattle and every beast of the field on its belly it would go. This is is a, a reference to the actual snake, okay? And we know that's the case because it's compared to the cattle and the beast of the field, okay? We're talking about the, the physical snake here. The snake is now going to crawl around on his belly and eat dust. And that doesn't mean that the dust becomes a part of his primary diet, but rather he's forced to lick it up because he's so close to it. He's going to be brought to the ground, forced to lick up the dust. It's, it's a, a statement of utter defeat. And we use the, the, this in the same way, a similar way today. You know, another one bites the dust or eat my dust. It's, it's a statement of defeat. You've been defeated. You're down. You're beneath me. Micah 7 speaks about the enemies of the nation of of Israel. Micah 7, verse 16 says, Nations will see and be ashamed of all their might. They will put their hand on their mouth. Their ears will be deaf. They will lick the dust like a serpent. Isaiah 49 speaks of Israel and says this, Kings will be your guardian. Isaiah 49, verse 23. Kings will be your guardians, their princesses, your nurses. They will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. In Psalm 72 speaks about the messianic king and says in Psalm 72 and verse 9, let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. It's utter defeat. You are brought down face down, brought down to the earth. And that's what happened to the the snake. The literal snake was brought down to the earth. I mean, who knows how he got around before, but now he's brought down to the dust. 
And maybe some of you out there have, you know, compassion for the snake. It's like, why, why the snake? You know, I don't know if we have any, any snake lovers out there, but can you imagine uh, a loving father who does not destroy the instrument that murdered his son? And we know that the sin of mankind had an effect on the creation itself. Even the creation groans, Romans chapter 8. And this is not dissimilar to the way that God treated other beasts who were used as an instrument for sin. Leviticus chapter 20, verses 15 and 16. And finally, the serpent now becomes the visible reminder of the fall. But there's more than just the physical snake who receives a judgment here. There's also a judgment on the one who used the snake. And that's defended by the, the use of the word enmity. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. What, what does that mean, enmity? There's this, this kind of strife, and that's not used of irrational beasts. There's going to be this warfare. This is a judgment against a rational being who's culpable for his actions. Like I mentioned, everything that God created was good. The snake, the serpent originally was good in whatever form he used to exist in. But now he's going to put this judgment upon the one who is using the snake. There's going to be this enmity. And the Lord speaks about this greater triumph that's to come over Satan. But first of all, he speaks about this, this conflict. Look again at, uh, at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. There, there's this, this enmity between the snake and the, the woman. And I believe that the woman that he's referring to here is, is Eve. And she's the only woman in existence at the time, right? It's, it's between the, the, the serpent and, and Eve. She's the only woman. It's in the next verse, verse 16, says to the woman, he says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. He's talking to Eve. So there's an immediate application here for Eve. And what was that? This trust and confidence that she previously had in the serpent to actually listen to him. To, to, to follow his words, now that trust and confidence is going to be replaced by enmity. There's this disdain now. She would hate the enemy that brought her and her world into ruin. She'd have a personal hatred for Satan, and Satan would have a hatred for her. She would be a true believer in God and his promises instead of being tricked by Satan and his lies. So Satan lost one this day. You know, this, this woman would no longer be his ally. Later on in chapter 4, we find Eve looking for the promise to come. So, so we find this enmity. But there's also something said about her seed and the serpent's seed. It says, uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. So there's, a, there's the seed that's at war now. And this uh, word for seed, zera, can be used of a, a singular seed or of a collective seed or of offspring in general. And I believe that's the way that it's used here. It's in, in the plural. It's a collective sense. There would be many who would participate in the same conflict throughout the ages. They would line up on one side or the other of this conflict. Either they would trust in God and his promises by faith, like Eve did, or they would join Satan in his rebellion on the other side. And those who joined Satan in his rebellion became his offspring. We have a number of passages that point that out. John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism. Remember that? And in verse 7, he says, you brood of vipers. You know what he's saying? You snake children. You, you, you kids of vipers. What are you doing coming out here? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Matthew chapter 23, Jesus speaks to the religious leaders in condemnation. And he says this in verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, you snake kids, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets, wise men, scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. This is the warfare between the sons of the viper and the sons of those who live by faith. So that upon you may fall all the guilt of the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel. Hold on a minute. Abel? To the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Why, why, why was Abel mentioned? He was involved in the warfare. He was a part of this same warfare. 
He was the son of Eve by faith. And he was murdered by somebody who was connected, according to, to, to 1 John, connected to the son of the evil one, the serpent. Flip over to 1 John chapter 3. Just want to show you this real quick. 1 John chapter 3, look at verses 11 and 12. Just to show you the connection between the, the serpent and the one who murdered Abel. Look at 1 John 3, look at verse 11. It says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of who? He was of the evil one. Who's that? That's Satan. What what is it saying here? That Cain is one of his offspring. He was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. The unrighteous ones are said to be of the evil one, a brood of vipers, snake babies. Their father's the devil. And there's this ongoing conflict between those who are of faith and those who are of the rebellion. And there's another conflict that's mentioned in Genesis, back in Genesis chapter 3. But here it switches from the kind of collective plural sense to the singular. Look again. Verse 15, it's like between you and the woman, you know, the snake and the woman, between your seed and her seed, so now it goes to the offspring, and then it says, he, singular, shall bruise you, singular, on the head. So now it goes to the the singular, the singular serpent and the singular seed. He, the singular one, shall bruise you, Satan, on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. What in the world is going on here? What we find, like I said, is this this other conflict. And there's one to come who would singularly triumph over Satan and give him the mortal blow to the head and finally put an end to the conflict. The serpent would be the heel crusher, but the son of God would be the head crusher. Next time, aim for the head, right? (laughs) Aim for the head. I remember uh, a while back, I had, a, had a, this, this pretty long snake. It was a big black snake in our backyard, and my neighbor told me about it. You know, he's hunting around in our backyard. And uh, we had young kids at the time, and it's like, okay, we're going to go out here and, and take care of the snake. And uh, my neighbor took the first whack at him, and then I took the shovel and went for the head. And then pressed down on the, the shovel until the head was detached from the rest of his body. And after I, you know, killed the snake, I put him up in a, in a cardboard box and kind of brought him around to show my kids, you know, scooped up the head, scooped up the body. Like, hey, look at, look at what dad just did, you know? Went for the head, got the head detached, severed head. And as I'm opening up the box to show my kids, the head by itself opened up its mouth. Incredible. <laughs> That's why you aim for the head. Because <laughs> that head's not coming for me. The body can do what it wants to do, but I got your head. And the head can't bite by itself. It can't jump up and get me. But it's like even after the head was severed, he still opened his mouth trying to do damage. The one who was to come would go for the head. Go for the death blow. And the question became, who is this seed, this singular seed, going to be? Even Jewish commentators regarded this passage as messianic. In other words, it's talking about the coming king. Who's going to rule the earth and take dominion over the earth? Who's going to come and do what Adam could not do? He, he wasn't able to rule the world in the way that God had told him to. Adam wasn't able to do that. He fell to the serpent. Who is going to come who will not fall to the serpent? Who's going to come who's going to take over the world? Who's going to come who can crush the head of Satan. Who was that going to be? And there was a search for that human child that would come and do this. And apparently Eve thought, you know, maybe I've had him. You know, she has Cain in chapter 4, verse 1. It says the man had relations with his wife. She conceived, gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've got a man child with the help of the Lord. God has helped me. He's helping us, Adam. He's bringing forth seed. Maybe this is the one with the help of the Lord. And then maybe possibly she thought it was Abel or Seth in chapter 4, verse 25. 
Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring, Zerah, the same word that's used back in chapter 3. He's, he's appointed me a seed. Here's the seed. And, and here's the seed in place of Abel because Cain slew him. So it wasn't Cain and it wasn't Abel because Abel's gone. So maybe this is the one. Seth is the replacement. He's appointed me another offspring. I've got the seed. Later on in the genealogical record, there was a father by the name of Lamech who took a look at his son Noah. Chapter 5 and verse 29, he called his name Noah saying, This one, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. What are they looking for? They're, they're looking for who is the one who's going to come, who's going to alleviate us from this curse. Who's it going to be? Is it going to be Cain? Is it going to be Abel? Is it going to be Seth? Who's it going to be? Is it going to be Noah? This one. Maybe this is going to be the one who's going to alleviate us from the curse. The search was for the seed. It's, it's on the search for the seed. Adam was, uh, Abraham was told in Genesis 12, I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you and make your name great so you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The, the seed's going to come through me? They're still on the search for the seed. Twelve sons of, of Jacob. One was told that the scepter will not depart from Judah. Judah, the seed's going to come through you. It's not going to depart from your line. David's told in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when your days are complete, chapter 7, verse 12, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. They're still on the search for the seed. One is going to come through me that's going to do this. Where is the seed? It was the same coming king that Isaiah foretold about. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Somebody's coming to bring the peace. And I'm looking for this one, this child who is to be born, the son who's to be given. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David over his kingdom, it's all connected. The seed is connected. We're still tracing the seed. Where is the seed going to come from? He would not have a natural birth, Isaiah 7, 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin shall be with child. And finally, we get to the record of the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1 where it says the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But guess who else he's connected to? Back in Luke chapter 3 and verse 23. Luke chapter 3 and verse 23. This is good stuff here, guys. This is good stuff. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as it was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, and as you continue to trace the genealogy, where do you get to? Verse 38. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This seed traced all the way back to Adam was the seed who would finally come to end the curse. And it was on the cross that Jesus Christ triumphed over the powers of darkness. Colossians chapter 2, 14 and 15, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And one day, as Romans chapter 16 and verse 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. This is the one who's come to give us victory. <laughs> and this was the, the first proclamation of the gospel. This, this is the message. There, there is one who is coming who, is, who will be the, the head crusher. The head crusher is on the way. And in the middle of this great tragedy and judgment that was being given, God says, But there's hope. <laughs> there's hope. I'm going to give you a promise. There's somebody that's going to come and correct all that you've just thrown this world into. There's one who's coming who will reverse the curse. And his victory will be your victory. And he will put an end to the warfare between the seed of the serpent and the seed of man. 
And that's what the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, anticipates, right? No, no more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. There's one who's coming to make his blessings flow. And as much as sin and the curse has corrupted this world and mankind, this one is coming to make his blessings flow just as far as the curse has been found. Satan is promised defeat, and the seed has already come. And he's given him the mortal blow on the cross. Do you trust in the one who was promised to come and to crush the head of the serpent? We have the, the fuller gospel. They had it, had it in seed form in Genesis chapter 3, but we have the, the fuller explanation of the one who's come. We can look back to the one who has come, born of a virgin, who lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, who died on the cross as a substitute for all those who would believe and trust in him. And not only did he come to be our savior, our suffering substitute, he also came to be the victor, our champion, the warrior, the king. And this is the one that we celebrate today. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for your word. Your word is so rich. Your, your word is just so comprehensive. Oh, Father, it, it just all connects, just, just line upon line, precept upon precept. Father, we are so grateful for the way that your word explains itself. Scripture explaining scripture. And Father, just landing on us with that, that weight. Father, you are such a glorious God. We thank you for the glorious Savior that we've been given. Amen. It's truly joy to the world. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.